Hello, welcome to Old Testament Studies, an unacademic modern history. My name is Nick, and my goal is to bring Old Testament scholarship from the ivory towers of academia to the common language of every podcast listener. I want to break down the technical conversations and methods of analyzing the Old Testament so that everyone can be involved in the academic conversations about what the Old Testament is, where it came from, and what its message is. Each episode, I want to look at the life and academic contributions of one modern Old Testament scholar to understand how their ideas developed and show their impact on our understanding of the Old Testament. So this week is Sir William Jones. William Jones was born in 1746 in London. His father was actually a mathematician, but William, the junior, showed a gift for languages. Even as a child, he learned English and Welsh, which were the native languages in his family and in London. But he also learned Greek and Latin and Persian and Arabic and Hebrew and had some basic understanding of Chinese. And I would guess that that would be Mandarin, but unfortunately, he just called it Chinese. This gathering of language knowledge, though, continued throughout his life, and he actually claimed to have some level of competence in about 30 languages by the end of his life. So William Jones's father died when he was three, and his mother raised him from that time on. He went to Harrow School in 1753 and then to University College, Oxford. He graduated from University College in 1768 and received his MA in 1773. He then became a tutor for Lord Althorpe, the son of Earl Spencer, who was seven years old at the time. So he actually stayed in this tutor position for six years and during that time gained a reputation for his translation skills. So for example, King Christian VII of Denmark had actually visited Jones and asked him to translate a Persian text into French. He did this in 1770, and he was then granted membership in the Royal Danish Academy of Sciences and Letters. Keep in mind that in 1770, he was only 24 years old. So his reputation grew fast, and he clearly figured out how to network with the highest rungs of society. This same year, Jones joined the Middle Temple and studied law for the next three years. If you aren't familiar with British law, they work differently from many other places, and especially if you're in the U.S. Instead of getting a Juris Doctorate at one of the countless colleges across the country, Britain has four inns of court, and these are located in London and provide education in law and also for the members to be called to the bar. In the U.S., you go to a college, then take an exam for the state to say that you know enough about law, but England has an older and quite different tradition. Anyhow, my point is that Jones joined the Middle Temple, which is one of the inns of court, to study law and presumably become a barrister of some kind. In April of 1772, 
which would be to say during the time that he was at Middle Temple, Jones was elected a Fellow of the Royal Society, and in 1773, he joined the Literary Club, which he then became president of in 1780. If you are unfamiliar with the Literary Club in London, it was a fairly exclusive group that met weekly to discuss politics and culture. So this is a way for Jones to move up the social ladder, just like joining the Royal Society would be. Side note, this literary club does actually exist, and it was so exclusive that even Churchill was considered controversial and was barred from it. And then he made his own social club, because that's just who Churchill is. Anyhow... During this time, Jones worked as a circuit judge in Wales and then tried to move into politics and ran an unsuccessful campaign for a member of parliament from Oxford in 1780. In 1783, he was appointed judge to the Supreme Court of the Judicature at Fort William in Calcutta, Bengal. This is actually now in India. Kolkata is the capital of the state of West Bengal, but obviously the political map was a little different then, including the whole fact that things were being colonized. But anyways, he was appointed to work at the court in Calcutta, Bengal. Within three weeks of his appointment, William Jones was knighted, and then the next month, he actually married Maria Shipley, the daughter of Dr. Jonathan Shipley, who was an Anglican bishop. And though he was appointed in Calcutta in March, he didn't actually arrive until the end of September in 1783 because travel was slow at the time. Anyhow, in India, he began studying the culture and obviously the language, as I noted, he learned many languages. And in January of 1784, he founded the Asiatic Society in Calcutta. He wrote about all different aspects of Indian culture, translated a bunch of their texts, talked about the relationship of the languages spoken in the region, and about their religious works. In 1794, which is to say just 11 years later, Jones died in Calcutta at the age of 47. He was actually buried in South Park Street Cemetery in Calcutta. So with that brief introduction to his life, let's take a quick break and come back and talk about his work with Hebrew and the Old Testament. Welcome back. As you might have guessed from the biographical sketch, William Jones was very interested in Hinduism and Eastern philosophy more generally. At the time, Eastern thought 
was much more general than it is now. So, you might be thinking, what does Kolkata have to do with the Hebrew Bible? They're quite far apart. Well, in the 18th century, many people divided the world into East and West. This monolithic way of categorizing cultures means that Israel can be lumped in with China and India because they are considered Eastern people. They are the others. This is opposed to Europe, which was the West, and was also described with these monolithic characteristics of their own. So when Jones analyzed Sanskrit and Indian literature, he had no issues relating them to the Old Testament. Now I will say, in Jones' defense, he did see a linguistic link between Sanskrit, Greek, and Latin, which we would say is the Indo-European language family, but did not include Hebrew and other Semitic languages. However, to then backtrack on that a little, he did include in this language family Egyptian, Japanese, and Chinese, which is quite obviously incorrect, especially since we talk about Semitic things here. Ancient Egyptian is a Semitic language related to Hebrew and Arabic. It is not related to Sanskrit, Greek, and Latin. So he wasn't entirely loose and free with his connections because he did see a difference between something like Hebrew and Sanskrit. But he was also not entirely correct because somehow Egyptian got linked in there. So anyways, let's get into the Old Testament. Throughout his life, William Jones considered himself an Orthodox Anglican, and he argued for a literal reading of the Old Testament. While I say this, I want to be clear that this was common in his day. Many of our previous podcast subjects would have considered themselves Orthodox, or tried to make appeals to the truth of the Old Testament even though they frequently fall outside of what many would consider traditional Christianity or Orthodox readings of the text. So Jones might have made some of these claims because he truly believed it, or he might have said them because it was the politically and culturally wise thing to claim. So let's start with his literal reading of the Old Testament. As Jones was discussing the importance of studying ancient India, he said, quote, They may even be of solid importance in an age when some intelligent and virtuous persons are inclined to doubt the authenticity of the accounts delivered by Moses concerning the primitive world, since no modes or sources of reasoning can be unimportant which have a tendency to remove such doubts. Either the first 11 chapters of Genesis, all due allowances being made for a figurative Eastern style, are true, or the whole fabric of our national religion is false, a conclusion which none of us, I trust, would wish to be drawn. End quote. So let's note a few things about this statement. First, he's railing against some people who are unnamed but are doubting Genesis. I have no idea who these people are, but the point is that Jones is setting himself up as defending the historicity of the Old Testament. 
The second thing to notice is that Jones claims they are true so long as, quote, all due allowances being made for a figurative Eastern style. This is one of the features of Orientalism in his day. They believed that European writers were literal and direct, but Eastern writers, anywhere from East Asia to the Middle East, were figurative and metaphorical. So the creation story in Genesis is true and important, but it must be read with the idea of figurative Eastern style rather than a literal and direct European style. This is very important to his reading. He doesn't just argue that the Old Testament should be read metaphorically, which other subjects have done, but that this is the style of Eastern people. He compares the writings of Sufis and Hindus, that is to say Persian and Indian writers, to the Old Testament, and critiques the writing of our past podcast subject, Robert Loth, claiming, quote, the very learned author of the Prelictions on Sacred Poetry declared his opinion that the canticles were founded on historical truth but involved an allegory of that sort which he named mystical, and the beautiful poem on the loves of Lili and Majnun by the inimitable Nizami is indisputably built on true history yet avowedly allegorical and mysterious, for the introduction to it is a continued rapture on divine love, and the name of Lili seems to be used in the Masnavi and the Odes of Hafiz to the omnipresent Spirit of God. End quote. So, in this way, the Song of Solomon, which Jones calls Canticles, is compared to Sufi esoteric writings. The mystical sense of the Song of Solomon is compared with Masnavi in the Odes of Hafiz, a Persian poet, claiming that all of them have mysterious and allegorical senses, but to understand them, you must know the host culture. You have to understand the Eastern way of thinking and the way of using allegory and emblematic speech to convey deeper truths like the omnipresent spirit of God and divine love. Now, this is different from many of the allegorical interpretations that we have seen before. He is not trying to claim that the texts are allegorical to make them align with natural law or reason, but that they are allegorical because that is the Eastern style. He is also not trying to find scientific truths behind the text and extract the emblematic terms to get there. He is claiming that the emblematic style is characteristic of Eastern culture, but it still conveys history and divine truths just in a more flowery way than Europeans are used to or even able to understand. On this last point, when Jones translated Hindu texts, he would sometimes cut parts out of them that he believed were, quote, too luxurious and too bold for European taste, end quote. So he truly did believe that the average European was unable to grasp the allegorical and mystical writings of 
Eastern cultures. Now, I want us to turn to his studies in Hinduism. For someone studying Hinduism deeply and claiming Orthodox Christianity, the theological differences must be addressed somewhere. In addition, the historical differences between them should be talked about even if Jones claims that they are using figurative language, it is still obvious to anyone that their histories are different because the creation story is not the same, nor are the main characters in world history like Adam and Noah and Abraham. Well, Jones tries to sidestep as much of the theological reason as he can, but some is still unavoidable. For example, he considers whether Hinduism informed Moses, saying, quote, If any cool, unbiased reasoner will clearly convince me that Moses drew his narrative through Egyptian conduits from the primeval fountains of Indian literature, I shall esteem him for having weeded my mind from a capital error and promised to stand among the foremost in assisting to circulate the truth, end quote. So this is an interesting statement. First, he appears to believe that Moses got at least some of his knowledge from Egypt, but he does not go into depth on what that knowledge is or how much of Moses' writing comes from Egyptian sources. Second, he notes the possibility of Indian literature as the background of Egyptian literature and thereby the background of Moses. However, notice that he's raising it as a question, not making an assertion. He does not say that Indian literature was the background, but says that if someone made a good enough argument for it, he would thank them. Keep in mind that staying in the good graces of the church was important at the time, so whether Jones believed this or not, he would be wise to raise it as a question rather than make an argument that could get him censored. In addition, as with the earlier quotation, Jones believes that doubting the Bible would prove, quote, the fabric of our national religion is false, end quote. And if he truly saw it that way, then he has good reason to leave this as a hypothetical question rather than arguing that Moses got his information from India through Egypt. He surely doesn't want to destroy the national religion. Regardless of whether Moses got his ideas from Egypt or ultimately from India, Jones recognizes that Moses' history is correct. As noted earlier, he claims that the first 11 chapters of Genesis are literally true. If you are familiar with Genesis, you know that this is the founding of nations. The history in this section goes from creation, through Adam's descendants to Noah. It then describes Noah's descendants, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and their children with some rough estimates on their geographic spreading. Well, if this is literally true, Jones must fit Indians into this historical framework, which he does. He believes that they are descendants of Ham, which, if you know about that weird nakedness story in the Old Testament, this is not necessarily a compliment. Ham is the one who saw his father Noah naked and whose son Canaan 
gets the curse of all curses, you'll be a slave to everybody. So he used this framework to trace back the origins of Hinduism, which he regarded as a pagan myth. However, he does not trace it back in the way that you might think. Some authors in his day were trying to identify points of corruption in other religions when they deviated from Orthodox Christianity. So, they would make an argument like Hinduism is almost Christian because they believe in the main gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva, which is essentially the Trinity. They would then go about explaining that this was a corruption of the truth that happened over time. Think of what our most recent subjects were doing with the Bible and trying to discover that obscure truth in the Old Testament, but they're doing it with other religions. So all people knew the true religion, but over time errors crept in to all the other religions, and now they need to return to the only one that has been kept pure from the very beginning of time, which is Christianity. Well, Jones doesn't exactly do this. If you remember that I quoted him discussing Persian poetry in comparison to the Song of Solomon. This is not just because Jones liked poetry and even wrote a lot of poetry himself, even though those are both true. This is because poetry and hymns are particularly important for Jones's thought. Jones was a big fan of some Unitarian teachers of his day. They were teaching essentially that finding God is devoid of dogma. You don't need theology or the law of Moses or any set of creeds. What you need is pure and rational religion. And this is where hymns come in for Jones. For Jones, hymns are poems directed towards God or songs directed towards the glory of God. So when talking about ancient hymns, Jones claims, quote, For if we conceive a being created with all his faculties and senses to view for the first time the serenity of the sky, the splendor of the sun, we should hardly believe it possible that he should refrain from bursting into an ecstasy of joy and pouring his praises to the creator of those wonders and the author of his happiness. This kind of poetry is used in all nations." End quote. So here's the full circle. The historical side of Moses is true, and the Bible itself is literally true. However, poetry, specifically to God in the form of a hymn, is what unites people with the deity and what sheds people of their religious baggage. Comparing Hindu hymns with Persian or Old Testament or even European hymns and poetry helps to see the appeal to the divine. Jones, then, can say that Hinduism is a pagan myth, but also praise them for their hymns and see a unifying element between Hinduism and Christianity. They don't need to believe in the Trinity to worship God. They need the pure and reasonable religion 
that shines through in their poetry praising God. So that is where I will leave us. Sir William Jones was very interested in Hinduism and Eastern languages and had a really complicated interpretation of the Old Testament's relationship to these other sources. He held that the Bible was literally true, but only if the cultural context of figurative language is properly understood. He also traced the descent of Indian peoples from Noah's son Ham, but questioned whether Moses received his knowledge from India via the Egyptians. And finally, Jones attempted to unite all religions under a pure form of religiosity through hymns to God that show pure worship devoid of creeds and theology. So thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe to it on whatever platform you are listening. And also please return in two weeks for an episode about William Watton. Thank you for listening to Old Testament Studies and Unacademic Modern History. If you'd like to contact me with episode ideas, questions, comments, or just deeper discussion about Old Testament or ancient Hebrew linguistics and scholarship, feel free to email me at modernoldtestamentstudies at gmail.com. Again, thanks for listening.